time was of the essence. Thursday evening had shifted into Friday morning. Nearly 12 hours had passed since the 26 children from Chowchilla and their bus driver were kidnapped on their way home from summer school. Parents and residents of the town frantically looked everywhere for them. Friday morning, President Gerald Ford authorized the Attorney General to call on the resources of any federal agency in the search for the children. The FBI, along with the Madera and Alameda County Sheriff's Department and countless other law enforcement agencies were on the case. The yellow school bus had been located in a slough where it had been deliberately concealed under a canopy of bamboo. But there was still no clue as to where the children were or who took them and why. So far, there's been no word from any abductors. And that has led to a wild series of rumors about the motives behind the crime. Was it an outright kidnapping, a psychopath or sex maniac on the loose, or an act of political terrorism? Authorities are examining every possibility. But the question in this small town this evening is, why here? And for the parents, why my children? What no one could have imagined is that the terrified 27 hostages were being driven around by their armed and masked captors in two sweltering windowless vans. And on top of the oppressive heat, they had no food, water, lights, or bathroom. The conditions on board were stifling. It was over 110 degrees that day in Chowchilla, and we were in the back of this van, and it was like an oven. Larry Park, then just six years old, told me how the bus driver, Ed Ray, had the kids move to the center of the van so they could relieve themselves. The mingling odors of urine, sweat, gasoline, and pumping adrenaline were overwhelming. Everything in this van was working against me to even be able to live, to even be able to breathe. I was, I was breathing in darkness. I was breathing in heat. So it was a panel van, no windows. It wasn't a family van you'd take the family in. It was a service vehicle, nothing in the back, so it was just bare floor, bare metal floor. Uh, you talked about singing songs. Uh, Ed Ray was doing what he could to make you feel a little bit comfortable. What kind of songs did you sing? Well, it was the mid-70s, so they were disco songs. Um, Boogie Fever, I can remember the, with the younger ones, we sang some Bible songs. We sang If You're Happy and You Know It, Clap Your Hands. Captain and Tennille, I can remember that. The popular songs of the late mid to late 70s is what we were trying to keep us company. Then suddenly the vans stopped. I was just trying to figure out what the heck was going on because if I could figure out what was going on, then I could maybe figure out a way to get around it. But, you know, it was just the not knowing what the heck was going to happen next. And uh, then I could tell it got dark. Mike Marshall was the oldest of all the kids on the bus that day. The younger children clung to him as they were driven miles from home. What Mike told me happened next is frightening. 
we finally stopped and you could hear sound like they were covering us up with a tarp and uh, they said to be quiet and they were out there listening and back band doors flew open and he grabbed the kid and pulled the kid out and shut the door again and I, that for me was one of the most scariest moments because now we're going to find out what the hell we're here for and um Every time they'd open the door, the kid would get pulled off of me and they would open a spot on my body and it would just get filled up with another hand. Now it was about 3.30 a.m. Friday morning when the kidnappers pulled the kids out of the vans one by one. At gunpoint, they ordered each child to give their name, age, and hand over a piece of clothing hard evidence the kids were at the mercy of their abductors. Jennifer, who was just nine years old, remembers the terror she felt. Tell me about your experience when they asked you your name and what did they take from you? Okay, so I was the last one to get out of the van because as they were exiting the children out one at a time, I kept scooting to the back further and further because I was the mouthy one that had been yelling at them. And so I thought if I just kept sliding to the back, maybe they'd just forget I was in there. Um, so I was the last one out, and at that point in time, all I had on was my pink swimsuit because my shorts and my shirt that I had on when I got on the school bus had been taken off because it was so warm. So I had grabbed a shirt on my way out of the van. I don't even know whose it was. I just grabbed something to cover myself up because I was self-conscious. And so they asked me my name. They asked me my age and they took the shirt that I was hanging on to. And then they said, go down that ladder. And they pointed to the ground. Jennifer and the other children didn't know it yet, but they were about to be corralled from one dark place to another. Their nearly 12-hour van ride had taken them 100 miles away from Chowchilla to a rock quarry in Livermore, California. Livermore is about an hour and a half east of San Francisco. After getting out of the van, each hostage was ordered to climb down a ladder into a dark hole in the ground. Bus driver Ed Ray was among them. And all I saw was dirt and the very tip top of a ladder sticking out of a hole in the ground. And I thought either that's where everybody else is or that's where I'm going to be all by myself. Either way, it didn't sound very good. The hole was a truck trailer with the words Palo Alto Transfer and Storage Company written on the side. The children couldn't see that, though. No one could. The trailer was buried 12 feet deep, out of sight and out of mind. It was essentially an underground tomb. I did what they told me to do, and luckily for me, when I went down the ladder, that's where everybody else was. So I was the last one in. They threw down a roll of toilet paper and some flashlight batteries or a flashlight and told Edward, we'll be back for you. They closed up the hole, and it was dark. The children strained to see in the black pit of darkness. In one corner, there was cereal, 
boxes of Cheerios, honeycomb, life. There were also mattresses, bread, peanut butter, and several jugs of water, along with a couple of flashlights. Two ventilation pipes with fans pumped air into the musty trailer. As the children cried, their captors above ground pulled up the ladder and began sealing the roof of the trailer shut. Then they put heavy truck batteries and dirt on top of a manhole cover and constructed a wooden box around the roof to seal off the opening. The children and Ed Ray were being buried alive. And then you hear the dirt and rock hitting it on top of the trailer. Well, we're being buried alive. I'm still amazed at how brave those kids were, and, you know, looking back on it is amazing. Can you describe what it was like buried underground, something that most people in their wildest fears would never imagine could happen to them, and here it's happened to you at nine years old? Well, it started off being not so uncomfortable. Um, we had food and there were makeshift toilets that were cut in the wheel wells that the kidnappers had put. So we actually got to use a somewhat restroom in front of everybody, but after the food was gone and the water was gone and the batteries that were running some fans that were circulating some air to us had died, then there was no air. I remember thinking, I'm going to die in here. I said my prayers, told God if he got me out of there, I would never fight with my brother again. I would do my chores at home without being asked, and I would go to church every Sunday. Even though I didn't normally do that, I would find a church in town, and I would go every Sunday. I think a lot of the story here is about prayers to God. I, I, I know your mom also said prayers to God, and there are a lot of churches in Chowchilla, a lot of uh, people with faith in that community, and as a small child, you were sending up your prayers to God, too. I was desperate. I mean, it was at that point, that was when the desperation and the fear set in. I, I, I seriously did not think I was going to make it out of there. I really think I was making peace. That was it. I was going to die with my brother and some of my best friends, and that was it. I'd be found if I ever was found in my pink fuzzy velour bikini. Circumstances were bleak. Children cried and prayed and clung to each other just to know they weren't alone in the dark. As Mike said his prayers, he was also coming to terms with their fate. But something stopped him short of giving up. And about that time is when there was a big crash. One of the kids was kicking around on the, one of the posts, poles that was holding the ceiling up, and it came off its block. Neither Mike nor anyone else could have expected what happened next the trailer's roof began to give way from the weight of the dirt and heavy truck batteries. 
the end of the trailer caved down, fell down, and uh, it took away that air vent, which wasn't really working very good anyways. So now we're all bunched up at the one end. The screaming to this day is burned into the audio files of my memory. Um, the screaming and the crying, um, the, the sound of the roof collapsing, the sound of the walls of the van buckling in, um, these things that, that I, I, I just cannot get rid of them. I've, I've told people before, I can't wait until I get Alzheimer's so that some of this stuff goes away. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If they were going to try to escape, now was the time. I got up to go look at the situation. Edward was there with the flashlight, and uh, the dust kind of cleared away and everything, and he told me it looked like we were going to have to stay down there and kick the bucket. Die. That's exact words, yeah. And that flipped a switch in me to where, okay, well, if we're going to sit down here and kick the bucket, well, we might as well kick it trying to get out. Ed Ray and Mike, they started searching every corner of that van looking for a way out. They took a long look at that manhole cover, and, and that's when the escape started to take shape. kids and Edward talking amongst themselves, we need to do something. They're, they're not here. They're not coming back. We're going to die. This is going to be it. Or if they're up there, they're just waiting for us to try to escape and then they're going to kill us all. So we're either going to die just doing nothing or we're going to die trying. Mike was Mike was Hercules. Mike was Samson. He was the man that slayed the beast. Death came knocking. And Mike Marshall said, not today. Not today. And so they piled up some mattresses, he and Ed Ray. And Ed Ray started pushing on that manhole cover and... I mean, it was a manhole cover, solid steel. Those things are heavy. And then they had put the bus batteries onto it. That is like two or three of the batteries that are in your car. And I've changed my own battery. I know how heavy those are. And Ed Ray put his shoulder to it and started lifting. (laughs) 
And Mike, oh, he put his arm through there to start pushing on those bus batteries. I wonder if he ever thought that if Ed Ray lost his grit on that manhole cover, that he would have lost his arm. I'd, I just, what was Mike thinking? Putting his arm through there and sliding in. How, how strong was Mike? How, 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 I mean, seriously, like Hercules at 14 years old, to be able to put his arm through there and push on those bus batteries and make them move with one arm. In Mike's own words, he was raised cowboy, and at the age of 14, he was strong from years of wrestling steer, roping, riding, and saddling horses. I was trying to get it to move, pushing up on everything I had. And um, all the kids were cheering me on, you know, come on, Mike, come on, Mike. And, and I was just about ready to, to stop. And they all hollered, it moved, it moved. And I don't know if it moved or not, but I wasn't arguing with them. That was all the encouragement Mike needed. He and Ed Ray continued pushing the steel plate, budging it little by little, an inch at a time, over a span of several hours. Eventually, Ed was able to hold it up while Mike kicked apart a box spring from inside the trailer and used the wood from inside to keep the lid propped up. Ed Ray kept moving the manhole cover, sifting it from side to side so that he could make a big enough gap that one of those batteries would fall. And then there's Mike, there's Mike waiting for this battery to fall this battery that probably weighs at least half his weight and he's waiting for it to fall so that he can trap it so it doesn't bounce and break his leg or Ed Ray's leg so that they have control of it. God definitely had our back and we got those big batteries down out of there. And then I slid up in between the plate and the top of the roof and then pulled the block out so that the plate went back down on the trailer. But I had another block that kept it from going all the way down. It was three inches of gap there. But at this point, you're sitting on top of the van and underneath the box. Yeah, I'm inside the box. And uh, Edward, he is saying over and over, the same thing over and over is, hollering up, Purdy, please don't hurt him. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. And just over and over. And reflecting back, he was trying to give me some insurance, you know, in case they were up there. From inside the plywood box, Mike began digging and picking at the wood, trying to claw and escape. Remember, rock and dirt were piled on top of the box. Mike starts, you know, feeling around on this plywood to see if there's any give anywhere. And and one of the pieces gives a little bit. And so then he's trying to dig at it, but he can't dig at it. The dirt is too hard. And so he and Ed Ray are talking about it. 
and we've got box springs down there as well as mattresses. And so Mike's like, let's break up a box spring and I can use it to gouge at the wood. And he starts gouging at the wood and it's taking a long time. You know, Jeff Brown is taking turns with him to dig this dirt out. This dirt is falling and it's creating this dust in the trailer, wall to wall, floor to ceiling. And we're choking on the dust and we're gagging on the dust. And and so Mike has us take our shirts and and wet them with some of the water that we had down there and put them over our noses so that we can breathe and not have the the dust in our mouth and and he was digging for hours and hours and hours they're digging i'm at the bottom of the of the mattresses they had stacked these mattresses up and i'm at the bottom of the mattress i'm trying to pull this dirt out of there so that they're not tripping on the dirt and doing all that they were digging to get to the edge of that plywood that was covering everything. And I remember Mike saying, I found the edge. I'm going to pull on this. And he starts pulling. Now, again, most of your listeners, they don't know what a piece of plywood is. Okay? A piece of plywood is a 4 by 8 sheet of wood that is pressed together from a bunch of other wood. And to get a piece of plywood to the size that you need it you have to use a saw because you don't just break a piece of plywood it doesn't just break off in your hand and Mike takes hold of this piece of plywood this 14 year old boy but we know he's strong because he can move bus batteries right we're talking about Hercules here so but this 14 year old boy takes a hold of this edge of this plywood and he starts pulling on it. After hours and hours in the dark, oppressive underground tomb, the digging and the scratching eventually paid off. This is a steady, increasing pressure, pulling harder and harder and harder as you pull because it's not giving and so you know you have to pull harder and then you start hearing the cracking because plywood doesn't snap. It breaks off in pieces. Remember, this is a whole bunch of wood that has been pressed together. And so it starts snapping in pieces and you're hearing the snap, 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 and then nothing and then snap, 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 snap. And then when he finally does get it to snap off, the dirt starts showering in. I pulled down as hard as I could and broke a corner off. And I mean, I'm trying to brag or anything, but <laughs> I mean, how the heck does that happen? That's, you know, impossible almost. And when I did that, all the material just came crashing through, just whoosh, and I just remember being plummeted, you know, with the dirt and rock. This little circle of sunlight beaming down 
onto the top of the dirt onto the topmost mattress. This this sunlight and the air being sucked out of the van like a vacuum. And air replacing that. And the dust just moving in all directions and catching that sunlight. And it looks like I'm in a in a, a shower of shooting stars that are just moving in all directions. And then, in that moment, caught like an elusive butterfly, being able to feel it like a feather, there is hope. And that hope, that hope engulfed me. And light took the place of darkness. It was like a beam of light from heaven, just woo! And I can still picture it because there was light and then there was all this dust and dirt just floating through the air. And I remember thinking, somebody's gonna be up there with a gun and they're gonna shoot us all. So I'm just going to stay right here where I'm at until they can all figure out what's going on up there because I'm not sure I want to go up there. I didn't think that my head would fit out that little corner, but I had to go for it. And I got my head out. And uh, once I got my head out, you know, I was able to bust out. And uh, I could see kind of where we were, but I wasn't really above the ground yet and I stand on top of the trailer and uh, had the plate opened up and Edward was handing me these kids and I was just flinging them up on top and uh, then pulled Edward out and then he reached down and pulled me out. We cheered. We cheered. Mike crawled out of there, and Ed Ray started handing us all up, and we're out, and the sun is shining, and there's bushes, and 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 the world, the world seemed real again. For the first time in a day and a half, there was a world out here. There were birds. There were bees. There was air, there was wind, the, the sun was there. Unbelievable. You still didn't know where you were. We were out in the middle of a field. What did you do? And when Ed Ray got up, he looked around and there was a big building off in the way. And so we just started walking toward that building, not knowing what we're going to find, not knowing who was there? Nothing. It's just for Ed Ray and Mike, it was one step of courage after the next. The children had been held captive underground in the hole for nearly 16 long and terrifying hours. It was now 8 p.m., July 16th, Friday evening, when they finally, some might say miraculously, emerged from the hole. 
Their courageous steps led them to the quarry's guard station, where authorities were finally called. And Mike, at the lead, walking right beside him like a grown man, like, you know, like, this is, this is my task right now, is to get these kids home. I can remember the heat on my back and on my face. I can remember being scared still because I had no idea where we were going or what we were getting into. And then we were still some ways off and we heard the klaxon sound, the alarm. And then someone's running toward us and Ed Ray and Mike put their arms out to get us all right snug behind them. And this guy runs up. I know who you are. I know who you are. That man was a security guard for the rock quarry. He spotted the children and Ed Ray as they held hands and walked toward the guard station near the entrance to the quarry. That guard, like everyone, had heard the news reports, and he knew that these were the kids from Chowchilla who had been kidnapped. He reassured the exhausted survivors and called the authorities. Ed Ray and the children knew their nightmare was coming to an end. When police arrived, they took pictures of each child and then loaded them onto another bus to take them away from the rock quarry and to a facility big enough to hold them all, where they could feed them, get them into dry clothes, and ask them questions about their ordeal. When they came to get us from the rock quarry, they came with a bus, and they wanted us to get on a bus. And there were a few of us that were holding out. We were pretty much done with buses. We would not get on the bus until Mike came over and told us, it's okay, we're, I'm going to get on the bus too, we're all going to get on the bus. Turns out the closest place that could hold them all was the local jail, a women's facility called Santa Rita Rehabilitation Center. The children, still in damp bathing suits from their swim day, shivered with cold, a big change from the sticky heat they felt after more than 24 terrifying hours in the vans and the underground tomb. Guards at the jail provided the children with blankets and with no kid-sized clothes on hand, had them change into adult-sized prison uniforms. Larry Park also remembers being given burgers, fries, and soda. I don't know that I even recognized at six years old the fact that it was a jail. I didn't, you know, they, they gave us clothes to wear if we needed clothes, and they fed us, and that was kind of nice to be able to get some real food. Um, but, you know, I was, I'm, I'm not going to say I was inconsolable, like I'm sitting there crying and crying and crying and you couldn't console me, but I was inconsolable in the fact that I do not want you, I do not want to talk to you, I do not want to look at you, I want my mom. I just want my mom. And that's what I kept saying, I just want my mom. And so people were coming and asking questions and there was this nice lady that came and put me on her lap and I did not want to be on her lap. I just wanted my mom, you know, just give me my mom. After a few more hours of being examined by doctors and being questioned by police, the children were finally escorted back to Chowchilla on a Greyhound bus. It was a quarter to two in the morning, Saturday, July 17th. Their ordeal had lasted nearly 36 hours. 
They finally got back to Chowchilla at around four in the morning to relieved and grateful parents and a throng of media. They woke me up and we were already parked and full of cameras and lights and and I was still half asleep and I went in the courtroom and seen my mom and I was surprised to see my dad because he was in Calgary at rodeo. Did he come all the way back here just for me? <laughs> my mom gave me a big hug and I, and I remember I was almost afraid to give her a hug back because I knew that I was going to lose it. When you were reunited with your mother, finally, what did that feel like? It felt good. I was happy to be in my mom's arms. I was happy to be alive. I was happy to be back in Chowchilla. And all I wanted to do was just go home and sleep. But uh, I remember being carried off the bus because I was still asleep and being put into mom's arms. And as soon as I was put into mom's arms, I woke up. I could smell her. I could feel her. I knew I was safe. And I picked my head up off her shoulder and I said, hi, mom, and put my head back on her shoulder. Their journey into hell was over. And yet, in many ways, it was just beginning. Coming up. Did you have nightmares? Um, the earliest recollection I have of them just soon after the kidnapping was that the kidnappers would line us all up, put an apple on our head and shoot and miss the apple and shoot me in the head. I would see my own funeral. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.